So, uh, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to the Automation Hangout, and this is your host uh, George Kuru. I'm very excited to welcome our special guest for today's episode, Slater Victorov. Slater is the founder and the chief technology officer of unstructured data platform company Indico. Welcome, Slater, to our show. How are you doing today? Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing great. Thank you. So, Slater, in today's episode, we would like to have a discussion with you on how AI as well as machine learning can be used to automate. analyze as well as generate insights from unstructured data but i would like to start the discussion by asking you a very very basic question on what is unstructured data and what kind of unstructured data exist within an organization and what are the what are some of the use cases that i can that we can explain about on how this unstructured data can be used to improve a process or efficiency uh, within a company Absolutely. And you know, because everything in AI and machine learning has to be appropriately confusing, you know, that's maybe where I'll start is I'll say that there is actually a few different uh, tiers of unstructured data, right? And this is probably the first place where some people get confused. The way that I use it is I try to use it in the simplest possible way, which is that there's structured data and that's everything that fits in rows and columns and spreadsheets, you know, where you've got your categorical variables and you know, you've got your numeric variables and things like that. and then you've got unstructured which is just roughly everything else right so there you've got your images you've got your text you've got your audio and i think that's the easiest that's kind of the most consistent definition of sort of structured unstructured data but you know again because things have to be appropriately confusing there is sort of another double click down on the unstructured side because you know unstructured data has been around for a very long time even if you think about checks right and and insurance claims right it's been around for decades and decades so people have tried to winnow the problem down and make it more tractable so you actually have what's called structured unstructured data and that's you know if you can imagine sort of these government forms where you know the xy location and there's kind of a very specific template so then there's there's a spectrum there as well and so you got you know that's structured unstructured data and then you also have unstructured unstructured data which might be something like a long form contract right something that is going to be different every single time maybe something that's very visually rich like a home appraisal right is going to be unstructured unstructured data okay and uh, so what are the percentages later like structured versus unstructured like uh, which one will be higher when you look at a, a, a mid size or even a smaller organization Yeah, so the way that I would really compare those, right, using my traditional definitions, right, is is the last, you know, maybe 30-40 years of really significant improvements, even on the AI side very specifically, has all been oriented around structured data, right? But even if you go back to database technology, right, and those traditional schemas right in your relational databases like very heavily focused around structured data. right and, and i mean and it's worked tremendously well right I, i don't think i have to tell anyone if you look at tableau if you look at data robot if you look at dataiku you know databricks you know all of these incredible companies that really are focused on structured data been tremendously successful right it's worked really 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 well unstructured data however represents about 85% of all the data out there mm, right so that, that's the first thing to understand yeah it, it's the vast majority of it right it's way more than the structured data but it's also much much harder to do right and and the way that i would describe it right is you know very simply the problem is that when data is structured when you know all of the variables you care about right then there's no additional discussion that really has to happen at that point right you know, you know kind of what you've got very different from unstructured data right when i've got a 100 page contract someone has to decide at what po- at some point here is what matters about that contract right there there's got to be a human decision right about how you're going to look at your entire you know repository of 4000 contracts and and you know the technology is also significantly more difficult right so you you've both got this human part 
right? Where you have to find some formalisms for a lot of this very, very messy data, right? You've got to figure out how to make sure, you know, like Josh and Amy do this process the same way, right? Because even if they've been next to each other for 30 years, right? And then say like a, a loan application, you know, mortgage application, something along those lines, they might actually be doing these processes in subtly different ways. And, you know, that is just one thing that, you know, it's kind of inherent to unstructured data problems, this fuzziness, and you've got to figure out how to get to the other side of it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And there are a lot of RPA tools that have come into the market. Some of them have been there for quite some time. And there are, there are, uh, there are known challenges with some of these RPA tools. It's very tough to automate some of these business processes. And then you also have problems with uh, taking decisions using the capabilities of these RPA tools. So how is that uh, your platform is actually trying to solve these problems that exist within the current RPA tools? Yeah, and actually I would say kind of the huge resurgence of RPA has been one of the flashpoints that makes people start thinking about unstructured data, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think that is one of the places when you talk about what RPA is really, really good at, right? When you've got these very structured, very objective processes that say, you know, copy this value here, paste it there, you know, log in with this username and this password, right? RPA, very, very, very good at that, right? The second that some human decision-making enters partway through the process, right? We have to say, well, okay, then send this contract over to Steve, and then actually Steve has to figure out whether that contract is okay. RPA can't really handle that, right? It sort of falls down on its face very, very quickly once you start getting into this unstructured world. And actually, that's a place where we've worked really well. So, you know, we've got partnerships with all of your, with, you know, the three major RPA providers, uh, Blue Prism, Automation Anywhere, and UiPath to really try to superpower a lot of these RPA initiatives and, you know, kind of teasing something that we'll talk about in a little bit. These centers of excellence around automation have really leaned into automation, you know, full force. And I think while RPA has really turned them on to a lot of the potential here, they're realizing that it's, it's not stopping with RPA, right? It, it, you know, there's a lot of really important low-hanging fruit when you look at, you know, all of these, these important, very structured RPA-style processes. But it also just shines a, a higher, you know, a brighter light on all of these really messy, inconsistent, time-consuming processes. You know, I, I think there's some overlap, right? I think that when you look at some of the RPA vendors, they're doing a lot of OEMing, right, with people doing little bits of unstructured. You know, some of them are trying to do some unstructured stuff themselves. But it's kind of a mess, right? Because everyone has their own, like, oh, well, you know, we can do invoices, but only ones that are, like, 50% black lines that are, like, two to three pages, right? Oh, but, but if you want a five-page invoice, actually, we, we've got a partner for that. And actually, if that invoice comes from, you know, the Eastern Hemisphere, then we've got two more partners that might have to handle that, right? So right now, I think that when you when you look out at the unstructured space, right, or the automation space, right, there's, it's like this gold rush where everyone's like, wow, like there's such incredible opportunity here. But I think it's a place, especially un- unstructured, where sort of the appetite has gotten ahead of the technology in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, and it can't all be roses, right? While our customers tend to do really well, overall, actually, the success rate on these kind of AI-powered unstructured use cases, you know, it's like somewhere between 10 and 20%, depending on how you measure it, right? And actually, okay. all of the others are, are failing usually before they get out into production, just because it's hard, frankly, right? And okay. it's very easy to demo something that, that works. It's very hard to get something into production. Yeah, because of various conditions that you may need to deal with when you're actually pushing something into production. Like, is it because of the model, the data that you use to model may be very simple, but when you get into production, you actually have a lot of scenarios or out-of-box scenarios that you, you can, you'll have to deal with. Is that the primary issue? 
That's one of a handful of really big issues, right? Mm, okay. So, I mean, but, but that is absolutely key, right? And I think that's something that people really don't understand in the unstructured space, right? Is that solving the problem for one document is, right? It's actually very easy. You know, you don't need any AI to do that whatsoever. And the problem is that then the business people making the decisions on, on what products to buy, they often don't understand that gap. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to see a demo that works on like one, 10, 20, 30 documents. Right. Yeah. It's actually really easy to kind of put that together. But when you're talking about something that's really enterprise scale in production, where you're talking about millions of documents, right, the traditional approach of, you know, let's let's just write a rule for every different kind of document. It just it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Like it, it falls down very, very quickly. That is a huge issue in getting to production, but it's not the only one. So to kind of highlight another, these are really compute intensive yeah. you know, models in a lot of cases. Right. And also, even when you just talk about the data that is moving across systems in these documents, we were actually really surprised when we talk about some of our really big clients, they might be processing millions of documents a month. Right. And that's, you know, hundreds of gigabytes or more data, you know, just flowing across the pipeline. RPA even isn't actually set up to handle that. Because when you look at structured data, actually, it might be a really huge amount of records, right? It might be millions, it might be billions of records, but each record is a very, very small amount of data. And that's one of the things that's also really difficult about unstructured from an architectural perspective is you've almost flipped the whole thing over on its head, is that, you know, like a million documents is, is huge. Like that's, that's like a massive scale use case, right? But each document might be 10 megabytes of binary blobs, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these RPA solutions, they might cap out at like 10,000 documents a month until you start doing really, really crazy stuff. So, so that's one of the other things that's really surprising is that actually the entire kind of architectural and ML ops side of things, well, again, solved on the structured side, there's a lot of really, really good solutions out there. Um, people are now trying to solve unstructured in the same way and it, like it just doesn't work very well. You mm -hmm. have to really kind of, twist your, your architecture around in a very different way. Okay, very interesting uh, thought. Uh, you, you, you touched upon uh, a model or the, the center of excellence model for uh, implementing automation. And there are various other models that uh, we have seen, like uh, you basically have center of excellence is built around lines of business or portfolios. There are mm -hmm. folks that are trying to actually set up uh, an RPA team or an intelligent process automation team uh, for a mm -hmm. set of mm -hmm. business processes or a department. So what is that you've seen working and uh, what is the model that you recommend for companies who are trying, into, trying to actually automate some of these processes? Yeah, so, so we've actually seen a very specific COE model work very, very well. And I think that I'm really glad you asked the question, honestly, because it's something that we see a lot of different models and some of them just, just work and some of them just don't. And so I think that the two issues that people often run into is, number one, you can have a COE in name only, right? I think one of the things that's really important is that you have to empower the COE to do vendor selection. Right. Because if they don't have, you know, and it doesn't have to be huge, but even just a small budget to run POCs. Right. If they can't get the time of line of business to really make sure they're picking the right solution. Right. They're going to have a lot of trouble having success. So I think that's number one. Right. Is that the COE really does have to have its own budget and its own purview for going through and doing these evaluations. Mm -hmm. Number two, they've got to be really closely aligned with the line of business, right? I think that's the other problem that we've seen often is that if the COE is kind of doing their own thing and, and they kind of tilt the other way and the COE has all the responsibility, it's like, well, then you don't get things out into production, right? Because then it's just like the COE makes these awesome demos and they try to bring it over to line of business and line of business is like, what are you talking about? This is not what I wanted at all, 
right? Mm -hmm. So really the model that we like is where the COE is responsible for picking vendors that are going to make sure that, you know, enterprise-wide they're doing things responsibly. You know, I I think that is important. You know, they've got to check the procurement and make sure that everything is secure and, and work the IT processes. So I think that's really, really important. And then they should be primarily facilitating interactions with line of business is the idea, mm-hmm. I, I think, right? They should be making those connections, right? And, you know, facilitating things. And, and even ideally, what I think often works with COBs is if you have kind of a couple of enterprise architects or developers, maybe even on that team, and not, you know, maybe they'll help with POCs, but they should even be primarily set up to help do the integrations with the line of business, right? Because, mm-hmm. and people often don't realize this, right? The line of business might have their own internal tools, but even getting stuff to integrate with other internal systems, right, can be a huge hassle, right? And, and often, you know, the line of business probably doesn't have any developers to handle that. So we find, you know, having a couple of those on the COE team, that again, just like makes the whole model work. That's very interesting because every, everywhere I've seen this problem where the COE and the line of business are the different groups who are responsible for the current processes, there is some kind of rift between both of these groups and things don't go in the right way. So that's very, very it, it, useful it's, insight. It's hard to balance. It's very tricky. It's very tricky. That's very interesting. The other challenge uh, that we have seen, especially with uh, both RPA as well as intelligent automation is uh, the knowledge around AI. So you may have business SMEs within your team or within your organization who are actually good on the business processes. They may not have any clue on what AI or machine learning is, or you may have technical folks who do not have any clue on the business processes. So how do you balance between uh, these two? And what are some of the solutions that you would recommend? Yeah. And I think one of the problems here, maybe twofolds, right? I think number one, I think some COEs have a notion that they've got to do things in this really strict serial manner. Right. And I think that's something that definitely folks can get in their own because sometimes they're like, all right, first, I've got to get my data lake set up. Right. And then I can get RPA set up. And then once I've got the RPA set up, I'll get my iPass set up. And then then maybe after all that, like I can get after intelligent process automation. The problem, of course, like is you're never really even done with the lake house. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one problem that I've seen a lot of organizations run into is that they think of things really serious, serially, and they build AI up in their mind as this like huge, like impossibly difficult thing. And, you know, in in their defense, I think there are a lot of vendors out there that are saying like, you know, whatever, two year implementation time for some AI stuff. So, I mean, I I just think that's, that's ridiculous, right? I just think like those vendors need to be kicked to the curb, right? You know, if you're not getting stuff out into production in six months, like we're good enough at it, like that's a reasonable expectation today. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really the core. And one, one of the things that we found is really, really important at a lot of our more successful customers, right? The ones that are really kind of making a lot of money with this technology is we have this big thesis that we would just be like an activity in UiPath or something like that. What we didn't realize is that these unstructured processes, they're sort of whole processes in their own right, right? And kind of just as much as there's one activity into, you know, the loan acceptance process, you know, in the UiPath world, right? We have kind of one block to, you know, get data from UiPath in our world. Right. So that was a, a kind of really big thing that we also just had to recognize is that those processes are they're important in their own right. And as much as they are AI centric, they are human centric. Right. So mm-hmm. our goal really as much as, as possible is to say, like, look, yes, there happens to be AI that is powering this solution. Right. But the way that we think of it is our role really is to help the line of business. Right. And the COE kind of work together mutually to define how this process ought to be done, right? And make something that is consistent and then understood organizationally. And AI is an assistive tool in getting there. But it's sort of it's sort of like the Apple mentality, right? Is that mm-hmm. 
when AI is like in its infancy from a product perspective, it's like very complicated, very difficult to use, right? Customers have to understand a lot about it to get after something. Yep. And, and probably then they've hyped it up so much that they're not, not going to be happy with where they get to. And it's sort of, there's a, there's a cresting beyond that where you get back to simplicity, right? And, and so for us in the product, for instance, subject matter expert doesn't have to do anything other than their job the way that they do it today. And the mm -hmm. AI is just kind of running in the background and says, okay, like I, I'm going to help and you don't really have to, you don't have to understand and you can kind of progressively learn more as you go. Yeah, that, that'll be very helpful. So maybe Slater, it'll be, it'll be helpful if you can actually explain maybe the process. For example, I have a business process that actually uses unstructured data in my organization. How is that I would actually go about starting off by automating the process? What are the steps that I should take? And what, maybe you can, if you can explain that, that'll be very helpful for our audience as well and how your platform works and what are some of the yeah. outcomes that you can expect. Yeah, so let's go with a, maybe a contract analysis example, right? Because I think that's that's a pretty good one, right? So I'll set the stage a little bit. So let's say, you know, you're a large bank and you have uh, commercial loans with, you know, 10,000 different entities and each one of those 10,000 different entities and loans, right, is governed by some complicated 100-page contract, right? And mm -hmm. very little consistency to them, right? Basically, each one of these is a one-off, right? And, and is handling like millions and millions of dollars. Okay, so now new regulation comes out, right, on on data protections, right? Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're stuck in a situation where you have to go through and audit all of your contracts. All of those 10,000 contracts, right? You basically have to figure out, okay, am I in compliance? Am I not, right? If I'm not, then, then you've got to let go kick off something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, today that's like a totally manual process. Like you might have a 60 person contracts team and they're just kind of, they're literally typing in Excel, you know, right. scrolling through, trying to do some control F, like very inconsistent, very, very slow, very tedious. The way it happens with us is instead, you're like, okay, probably the first thing that we're going to do is just get everyone in a room and say like, okay, let's, let's get on the same page about how we're doing this process. Like, what is success? What does that look like? Because it turns out people don't do that. And that's actually a really important first step. Yeah. But then once that is done, you take all of those contracts and you load them into the Indigo platform, right? And then you've got some consistency around, okay, these are the paragraphs that we're looking for. Here's kind of how we're classifying them for, for further follow-up. You know, so you've got some, some checklist defined for the people. And then, you know, you see those contracts that you uploaded into Indico in this UI. You just go through and you tag and you're like, okay, yeah, this is the relevant paragraph here. This is the relevant paragraph. Here. And then what happens is that basically at that point at time zero, there's no AI plugged in at all. It's like, it's a nice UI, so it works faster, right? It's a bit easier, right? But there's no AI plugged in at all. And then we've got this sort of special transfer learning stuff in the background. And just on your data, after a couple dozen examples, right? Let's say after you get through, you know, 30, 40, 50 of these contracts, right? The AI kind of pops up and it's like, oh, okay, hold on. I think I understand what you're doing here. And, and it starts trying to help, right? And, you know, it, it's going to start, you know, somewhat slowly at first, right? So maybe your first document, document 51, it's like, okay, I think I found the data paragraph. I think it's here on page 69, you know, do you like this one? And then basically as time goes on, it's going to take on more and more of that process, right? And you kind of get this accel acceleration that speeds up over time is, is, is the really rough idea, but it's very gradual. Right. And it's just kind of you, you're in complete control of sort of how much of the process you want to hand over to the AI at any point. So, you know, usually what happens is you'll go through probably a few hundred and at a few hundred, usually this thing is performing really, really well. You know, you might be doing this thing, you know, this whole process five, 10 times faster, you know, after your first couple of hundred documents. 
And then you have the decision, you know, sort of at any point they're on, right? You can either just let it go or we use something called staggered loop. So, you know, you're going to be capturing all those benefits, but for compliance reasons, you don't want to automatically deploy the improved model. So usually the COE will kind of look at it and, you know, maybe like once a month or so they'll say, okay, you know, time, time for a model update, right? And maybe you'll go from 10 times faster to 13 times faster, right? And that, that's, that's the rough idea of how it works. So basically you're actually having a phase where you're actually teaching the platform, what the documents are, what type, of, what type of unstructured data is there. And then it actually starts guiding you or augmenting your uh, your team with the information. And then over a period of time, it becomes self-capable or it can actually do things on its own. And then there might be a scope for optimization. And then if you want to actually use the optimized model, you can very well go ahead and publish that. So that's a very simple step. So yeah. during this process later, like, do we have to do anything with Python programming or anything of that sort? Is it completely no, uh, it's, it's, no programming? Yeah. So, so this, you know, kind of like happy path is, you know, a no code system, right? End to end. Now I will say there is a really rich API layer, right? So okay. I would say it's like very common that you've got to maybe plug this into some enterprise system upstream or downstream, maybe to get those 10,000 documents. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, right? So, but for that process, right, of actually I'm doing this more efficiently, like that's totally no code, that's completely facing the subject matter expert. But we've got a really rich API and, and then what a lot of customers actually like to do from that point forward, uh, okay. you know, talking about analytics or applications and things like that, they might then want to take that data and then like build some downstream functionality on top of it, right? And okay. that's, that's probably when a developer Okay, so if you want, you can actually extend or integrate this uh, platform with the other systems that you that you have. So exactly. that's, that's very interesting. Exactly. Yeah, you were mentioning about decision making. So one of the common terms that we hear very often nowadays is explainable AI. So what what does, does it really exist, and uh, how is that uh, uh, you can actually define explainable AI? Very simple. Terms. Such a such a perfect question, right? And, and, and I think the, the the unfortunate answer is technically no. Right. And, and I think that's the thing. Is, and I will say, I have to say this on, on both sides, right? Because on the one hand, strictly speaking, Indico does have award-winning explainable AI. And I believe very strongly in explainable AI. But part of being an academic is I have to be honest and say, no, there is no universally agreed upon definition of explainability today. Right. Mm -hmm. So no one anywhere in a totally objective way can kind of point at a thing and say, like, that is explainable AI. Look, I have delivered it. And I think that is unfortunate. It's not surprising. AI is a super noisy space and a lot of people have their own notions of explainability. I think explainability is a really difficult notion for several reasons, but I think one of the key ones is that many of the people arguing about explainability are data scientists, right? And the idea of what constitutes an explanation to a data scientist and what constitutes an explanation to a layperson are totally different, right? And it's very tricky, right? Because it's one word, it's explainability, right? And it kind of covers this whole mass of things. And, and there's just a lot of people very angry about, you know, what is and is not explainable AI. My personal view, right, is that explainability is very, very important. But the question then becomes, okay, explainability is this fuzzy notion. So how do we get to something concrete, right? And importantly, falsifiable, right? Because I want to be able to like, tick this off on a list and say, like, have we delivered it? Have we not? And so to me, the key word is control, right? So we ask, why is explainability important, right? How do we know that we have delivered explainability to a person? And the way that I think about that is that you have delivered explainability to a layperson if they can then change the output in a way that is intuitive to them, right? So we talk about explainability, right? And, and let's say, you know, the AI makes a mistake. Let's say it predicts, you know, Y and it should have predicted X, right? What do we want explainability to do in that case? Well, 
we want to say like, okay, you know, two things. Like number one, like what action did someone take that caused this misprediction? right? Like, how did that happen? Like, did, did I mislabel some data or something like that, right? So you got to have that. And then really importantly, the second piece of, okay, and how do I stop it from happening again, right? And I think that's actually the thing that a lot of people miss in the explainability discussion, right? Is that that idea of control of, you know, I need to be able to change the output next time, or I haven't really had the promise of explainability delivered to me. Okay, so what you're mentioning is like that likely help us to improve on things if that is if that exactly. is made uh, what do you call clear to the user on how a decision was taken and how is that you can you could have made it better or right, how is that you right. can make it better. Yeah, yeah. How how can you dive in? How can you you know shift it left or shift it right? Someone almost said it's like you don't really understand it until you can exploit it, and and I, th- and I think that's fair actually. That's interesting. And what are some of the core features that you're working on uh, from a platform capability standpoint? Maybe something that is going to come into the market in the next few months. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, we've got a lot of stuff. So I think that maybe I'll talk briefly about some of the stuff that we just launched that I'm super excited about. So one is this notion of partial labels. And this is a part of like a really big arc for us uh, on machine teaching, just about making the instruction of these models that much easier. But in a traditional approach, right, you know, if you've got a contract and it's 100 pages long and you want to kind of tag that and you want to process that or you want to correct that because it got something wrong, you have to fix the whole document, right? You've got to change the whole document, right? You've got to tag the whole document. Otherwise, you can't use it. And we're the first company ever that has broken that mold. That's the idea of a partial label. So instead of saying, hey, you know, I've got 100 pages of of contract and I need to make sure all of it was tagged, right? Now you can just say, okay, I'm not going to say anything about the rest of this, but I'm going to go to page, you know, like 34. And, you know, page 34 in particular, I'm going to make this correction. And I don't want to make any assertion about any of the other pages. So that's one cool thing that we can support. Another one is this idea of linked labels, right? So a lot of the really cool things in unstructured data, right, are about the different things you can do with that data, obviously. And traditional things like sentiment analysis, right, or kind of routing, right, or classification, those are super useful. You know, we've had that for a long time. There's another kind of class about, you know, extraction, say maybe you've got the invoice and you want to pull the total out. So that's another thing, super, super useful. We just launched two new tasks, though, that are also really kind of impactful in my in my world. One is what we call linked entities. So uh, actually, an invoice is a good example here, right, of where you want to create a sort of key value relationship there, right? Or maybe think about a, a table of contents, right, or maybe a header footer relationship on a page. So, you know, you can actually define and learn those now in the product. And what we call document unbundling. So... Let's use a loan application. I might have 12 different documents there kind of stapled together, right? I might send them in all as a packet. And, you know, at some point, I've got to figure out how to split those apart again, right back into their constituent documents. So that's document unbundling. And so that's uh, that's another feature that we just released. Uh, we just had a big uh, press announcement about our 5.0 release. Okay. So one interesting uh, fact uh, that you're talking about, like you basically can have linked documents. You can have a purchase order and invoice. Both can be separate documents. So does link entity kind of feature try to actually link between these two documents that are separate uh, using some kind of, uh, what do you call, uh, relationship, uh, by establishing some kind of relationship? So we do that. That's actually a slightly separate. It's actually, that's a more interesting problem. So what okay. that is, that's called uh, multi-hop reasoning. Right. Okay. And so we run into that, for instance, where you've got a contract that says, you know, you know, this rate is defined yeah. you know, in Appendix X. Right. And you kind of got to jump across. Yeah. This is more linking within a document with entities. Right. Okay. So if you think about like complicated tables are a really good example. 
Right. Or, you know, something where you've got, uh, sometimes we call these smart tables where you might have like three different columns and kind of are making links in between like, you know, this is a key, but you know, there's some, some cascade there. Okay. That's interesting. Finally, uh, one of the other things that I would like to know is basically there are a lot of graduates uh, who are actually coming out of colleges as well as professionals who are actually working in different streams who would like to get into the stream or the area of intelligent process automation. So what is the advice to those uh, professionals who would like to get into this area? One is around the skill sets that you might need. And second, what is the future going to be for those professionals? Yeah, so I think... Probably the best place that you can focus today, if you are someone that wants to get into intelligent process automation, is on MLOps and data pipelines. That would be my recommendation because a lot of people think that that works very similarly to the structured side of the world, right? And, you know, on the structured side, if you talk about things like Airflow and, you know, Spark and all these tools, again, work really, really well. Those are great tools. We don't have those on the unstructured side yet. Right. So understanding how to build those. Right. And then kind of going to practice. I mean, web scraping is a good way to practice because, you know, that's one of the few times where you're really dealing with a large scale of unstructured data as, as kind of an ordinary developer. Uh, but, you know, if you can find databases of PDFs, you know, some of these papers are becoming more common. So just practicing with file systems is honestly amazingly useful. Uh, believe it or not, that's actually one of the things that's very surprising in the world is that databases, while they are useful, File systems are kind of the ultimate database because, you know, you're talking about a million big binary blobs, right, that you've got to iterate over in an incredibly efficient way. And actually, this file system is sort of the, the most efficient way of doing it. You, you spend a lot of time kind of down the unit. Yep, that, that's interesting. And then one more uh, fact out of curiosity. So what triggered the start around unstructured data when you decided to start a company? Or what made you start a company around this particular theme of unstructured data? What was the triggering point? Yeah, and, and I, I'll say it took us a while to understand that unstructured data was the thesis, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it was it was muddier. You know, one thing I would say is my first pitch for Indico took two hours, right? Okay. It was very, very convoluted, right? It, was, it wasn't quite so simple. So I think a couple of things happened. So number one, it was the rise of deep learning and kind of this new generation of AI that allows us to tackle a lot of this unstructured data that just frankly was tremendously difficult before, right? Uh, but it actually turns out that was not enough. Right. Because if you look at sort of the classical deep learning, right, it takes like millions of examples to get after one thing. It's just like never going to work. So from there, it was this really big space of transfer learning and foundation models and large scale language modeling that kind of made that technology practical. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think it is the connection of that and sort of the resurgence of automation, you know, in the RPA lens. Right. And and kind of those two things coming together have created this sort of perfect storm where you now for the first time got both the appetite to go after these unstructured use cases and Mm -hmm. now the ability to go after these unstructured use cases. Right. That's that's Uh, very, very motivating uh, uh, to hear because like you've changed the use case. You found that there is an opportunity around unstructured and you actually changed the uh, the vision that you had in order to explore the opportunities that you had around uh, unstructured. It's very interesting to hear that 85% of the uh, data that you have is also unstructured, which is, I don't think a lot of people know that. There's a lot of uh, unstructured data, even though we deal with them on a daily basis. Because you see PDF files, a lot of those things in every organization. Thank you for sharing so much of information, like very valuable insights that you shared in the last 30 minutes. 
you made it very simple for, so that everyone can actually understand and we found that i found that there are a lot of things that you touched upon you touched, touched upon uh, what is unstructured data you also talked you also gave us insights on how automation should be implemented within an organization whether it should be a coe model or should we go with line of business you also touched upon explainable ai you called it some interesting use case as well as a process around automating some of these uh, processes and then you also touched upon the areas that new professionals or professionals or graduates should focus on so there's a lot of wealth of information that you shared it was very insightful thank you so much for spending time today with us out of your busy schedule and looking forward to have more discussions with you around this topic of unstructured data in the future thank you again it was it was a total pleasure george thanks for having me thank you with this we have come to the end of this episode of automation hangout hope you found the session interesting as well as useful please do subscribe to our channel to stay abreast with the ever changing world of automation until we meet again goodbye